Professor Francoise Bayliss, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, Professor, first of all, tell me, what were your thoughts when you first heard about uh, this uh, initial experiment of editing babies' genes to create something that didn't exist in nature? Well, at some level, I wasn't surprised insofar as it, a number of people had sort of, in the realm of science fiction, be making, been making such predictions. However, I certainly didn't think we were this close to somebody actually trying that which had been proposed. And I was also surprised to recognize the person who was now claiming that they had done this. There's also been a case where they're trying to insert human genes into monkeys. That's correct. We call that making chimeras, and that's when you would have DNA from two different organisms. Now, it does happen that we have sometimes chimeras within humans that are, occur naturally. Sometimes we get chimeras as a result of something like a blood transfusion, but those chimeras are not interspecies. They're within the same species, and we understand a little bit about the science and how that happens. In this case, it's actually a purposeful effort to put DNA from two different species together. And in many cases, that's done for basic biological research. Right now, some people are trying to do this, suggesting that this would be a way that we would be able to eventually grow human organs inside of other species. What's the scientific reaction to all this now that CRISPR has enabled this kind of thing to occur? Well, I think a number of people are asking serious questions about whether we're pushing the envelope too far, whether we're stepping over a red line. There's this language of the Rubicon that ought not to be crossed. And I think it raises a number of really important ethical issues because what you're facing right now is the prospect of taking over the human evolutionary story. And I think that that's something different than what's happened before. So, you know, we do have an impact on the next generation just by whom we choose to mate with um, and, you know, to have children with, et cetera. And there are ways in which the environment affects our DNA. So there are lots of ways in which already we do have an impact on the DNA of subsequent generations. But this is really at a different level because now we're talking about intentional design. And I've talked to other experts that say this kind of thing has the potential to completely alter the evolution of humanity if you do this and change the the gene structure. I think that that's possible over time, especially if you take this technology in combination with other technologies. So, for example, uh, we talk about gene drive in the context of making modifications to certain animal species in order to protect ourselves, for example, against such diseases as malaria. Well, if you take that technology along with CRISPR technology, along with what we might know in terms of artificial intelligence, in terms of what we know in terms of robotics, it's conceivable that we could be working towards that kind of goal. And I think it's in that context that people have some very important worries about increasing the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Because should this technology ever come to pass, it's going to be extremely expensive. It's going to be available to an elite few. And at least in terms of how I think about it, I worry that what we'd be doing is allowing certain segments of society to, in fact, entrench their privilege in their DNA. In fact, you've written quite extensively on this subject, uh, including a book on this, in which you say at one point, the decisions that will set a new course for science, society, and humanity. What did you mean by that? What I mean is that we are at a fork in the road. And we have a choice whereby we can say, these are social priorities, 
and they do or don't require the development and the use of this particular technology, or perhaps we think they do. But what I'm asking is for people to stop and think so that it's not just, oh, I've got this really cool science, what can I do with it? The same way we sometimes joke about, you know, if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, Um, and really asking people to step back. So in the book, I argue for this concept called slow science. And what I'm doing there is saying, we need to get focused on the right question. The question is not, what can we use this science for? The right question is, what kind of world do we want to live in? And once we've answered that question, then we can move on to the next question, which is, can this technology help us build that world? And if it can't, then maybe we need to turn our back on it. And and the reason I say that is because to invest in technology of any kind requires a lot of time, talent, and treasure. And we need to start paying attention to the priorities we have to set. And we need to ask ourselves questions about, is this where we want to spend our time, talent, and treasure? Maybe there are other technologies we should be focused on. In light of some of these experiments, what's been the reaction of of governing bodies and political entities and so on? Well, a couple of interesting things here. So in advance of uh, this research being done, resulting in the birth of two genetically modified children, a number of countries already had legislation on the books really clearly prohibiting this kind of research. As well, there's the Oviedo Convention, which had 29 signatories, which also explicitly condemned and prohibited this kind of research. So you already had a background whereby a number of countries that had looked at this possibility were already saying not acceptable at this time. Beyond that, what had happened is in the context of people moving forward and then us having the birth of those children, we've seen other countries sort of say, okay, we have to pay attention now, and put in place new rules and regulations to preclude this happening again. And, you know, I'm amongst the people who is lauding those countries for having taken those responsible measures, because I think we're in a period now of interrogation. We need to look at the ethics of this science and technology, and we need to think about what would be appropriate governance and oversight if we move forward with this technology. We cannot do that careful, thoughtful reflection if as we're trying to think things through, we've got, you know, genetically modified babies popping up all over the world because individual scientists have just decided, well, you know, we're going ahead. We can't wait for other people to make decisions. And I I argue very strongly that the human genome metaphorically belongs to all of us. So there's no one thing called the human genome, but it's the one thing we all have in common. And I'm suggesting that, therefore, we all have a right to have a say in how this does or doesn't get changed in perpetuity for subsequent generations. Professor Bayless, do you think regulations like this are actually enough? Well, who knows if they're enough in the sense that you can always have a maverick scientist who decides to thumb his nose or her nose at the rules. But I think what's really important is you're setting a public statement and a standard as to what you expect of your scientific community. And certainly for, you know, credible, uh, eminent scientists who want the recognition of their peers, who are, you know, happy to think that they might be working towards a Nobel Prize, they do not want to be shunned by their peers. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that's really important to scientists is that they be seen by themselves and by their broader community, as making a contribution to creating a better world for us all. They're not looking for the condemnation of either, you know, the general public, governments, 
other members of the scientific community. So I think if you do have rules and regulations in place, for many, if not most, those will be important, and they will follow those rules and regulations. They might argue for changes, but that's okay in a democracy. If you don't like the rules, there are ways and means for raising concerns. But in the meantime, you respect those rules. Professor Francoise Bayliss, thank you so much for this. Well, thank you for uh, giving me an opportunity to share my views. I appreciate it.